0: Uh, Turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 35. Exodus chapter 35. And as you're turning there, I just want to maybe refresh your memory because some of you may not remember all the way back in 1993. But in 1993, our nation experienced one of the greatest floods in its nation's history. From April to October of 1993... The Mississippi River and the Missouri River and their tributaries flooded, causing major, major damage. 320,000 square miles of flooding, over $15 billion in damages. Just an amazing flood. It was the largest flood in the history of our nation. Up to that point, the Great Mississippi Flood of 1927 was the greatest flood. Now, let's do a show of hands. How many of you are here in the flood of 97? Some of you remember that flood, and I wasn't here, but how many of you have ever been involved in a flood? It's just kind of a scary thing, because what happens? The water just keeps coming and coming and coming, and you really can't stop a flood. A flood takes everything in its path. It permeates everything in its path. A flood can be destructive. Back in 1982, when I was a kid and we were growing up in Houston, uh, we experienced Hurricane Alicia. Now, Hurricane Alicia was not as bad as Hurricane Katrina, but I remember there being so much rain during that hurricane that we looked out of our front window and we could not see our street. And the water just kept coming and coming. And there were some crazy people out there that were actually going down the street in Rafts and in canoes because it was so fun to go out there in that flood. Think about a flood for a moment. When I was in seminary back in um, January at Southern in, in, in Louisville, uh, we, I stayed on the campus housing in the hotel there. And I was on the first floor, and somebody inadvertently set off the sprinkler alarm on the third floor. And until the firemen could come, it just kept pouring and pouring and pouring. It flooded about eight different rooms. Thankfully, my room did not get flooded. So some of you have either seen a flood or been in a flood or just know what a flood does, the physicality of a flood. But I want you to think about a flood for a moment. But I don't want you to think about a physical flood. I want you to think about God's amazing grace as a flood that comes over us. A grace that permeates everything in its path. A grace that just comes and overtakes. A grace that just keeps coming and coming. And how many times have we thought to ourselves, I've used up God's grace. I've gotten to the end of God's grace. I've sinned so far that I'm, I'm outside of God's graces. If you are in Christ this morning, if Christ is your Lord and Savior, you can't get enough of God's grace. It comes to you like a flood. It never runs dry. And that's the power of the gospel. When you think about the power of the gospel, it is like a flood that goes out and permeates this world. Now our theme over the past few weeks has been advancing the gospel, trusting His provision. And as you've been thinking and praying and hearing sermons, and some of you may be going through the 40 days in Philippians, and and others of you have been spending time in prayer. We've we've spent just 40 hours in prayer as a church family. I pray that over the past few weeks, you've experienced maybe a mini flood in your life, a flood of God's grace, a flood of God's power, a flood of God's presence in your life. And so let me just recap this morning where we are and why we're here and and what we're doing. The end vision is not paying down the debt on a new building. Yes, we have a $1.5 million debt, and yes, it needs to be paid down, and yes, that's going to come from our collective giving. But if that's all we're about is just paying down the debt, then we've missed the big picture that I've been talking about the past few weeks. It's about advancing the gospel. It's about freeing up resources so that we can continue to do as a church what God has called us to do. Missions, ministries, strategies, church planning, going to India, going to Russia, continuing to do all the things that God has called us to do with the gospel. And secondly, we talked about trusting His provision. Being sacrificial stewards of what God has given us. Being good stewards of time, talents, and treasures and so we come today in the culmination of all this to celebrate and you may think now this is kind of a weird celebration because we're in chairs and it's not at our current building and it seems a little awkward and a weird why why are we celebrating what are we celebrating well if anything we should celebrate the fact that we are here as God's people that Christ has saved us by his grace and I personally want to celebrate God for this this is my personal celebration this morning It may not be your personal celebration, but it's my personal celebration. In light of all the things that have gone in our church over the past four or five years, and many of you know what I'm talking about, things that went differently, things that went south, things that were some out of our control, some things that we just didn't like the way they happened, I praise God that we're here today and that this church has not been destroyed, this church has not split, this church has not... Abandon itself, but that God has kept us together as a family through this. And God's going to continue to keep us together as we move forward. And so what I want us to think about this morning is, is our response. If God has showered us and flooded us with grace, grace in the gospel, grace in our salvation, grace in ministries, grace in missions, if God has done so much flooding of us in grace, what's our response back to God? Well, here's simply our response back to God. That we would overflow back to Him in thankfulness, in generosity, and in joy. That we would, thankfully, in obedience, joyfully give back to Him. So as we make our three-year commitments over the next three years... We are doing it joyfully, freely. We're submitting to the Lordship of Christ. From the very beginning, I did not want there to be any arm twisting, any pressure. And so I don't want that to happen this morning. You're here because God's called you to hear. You give because God has called you to give. I simply just want to share with you what the Word has to say and then let the Holy Spirit work on all of our hearts. And so for today, what I want us to do is as we think about making our commitments over the next three years, as we think about obedience, as we think about all the things that God may be speaking to us, I want to take us to an illustration of giving, an illustration of stewardship from the Old Testament. And that's what we find in Exodus chapter 35. Now, before we dive into Exodus 35, because it's almost at the end of the book of Exodus, I want to give you some background. Most of you are familiar with the story of Exodus. God raises up Moses. You remember, Moses is raised up as a leader. He goes down to Egypt. He confronts Pharaoh. you got the ten plagues. And then the last of the ten plagues is Passover. What are the nation of Israel called to do? They're to kill a spotless lamb, put the blood of the lamb on the doorpost and lintels of their home, so when the angel of death passes over, they would be saved. It's a picture of Christ. The clearest picture in the Old Testament of Christ. The the blood of an innocent lamb uh, being covering over our hearts so that we won't have to experience the judgment of God. And you know what happens? God saves them through the Passover. And God delivers them through the Red Sea. The amazing parting of the Red Sea and the whole nation, probably about three million of them accounting counting men, women, and children cross the Red Sea and then they get to go into the wilderness. And God gives them His law. And God provides for their needs. Daily they have manna to eat. Daily they have quail to eat. God provides water out of a rock. Everything's going great for the nation of Israel, right? Until Moses goes up on the mountain and spends a little bit too long of time up there. And What do the people do? Back in chapter 32, the people fall into gross sin. You remember chapter 32? It's the account of the golden calf. They fashion for themselves a golden calf and they engage in the grossest of immorality, the grossest of idolatry. And then Moses comes down the mountain and sees the people and Moses gets angry, but more importantly, God gets angry. And it's kind of scary there in Exodus 32 and 33 because God wants to destroy the people. God says, I've had enough. I want to obliterate you, my people, off the map and start over. And what does Moses do? Moses pleads with God and says, God, these are your people. Remember your covenant, remember your promise. And so God relents, and God says, I'm going to show grace. I'm going to show grace to this people that don't deserve grace. I'm going to give them a second chance. I should have destroyed them because of their immorality. I should have destroyed them because of their idolatry. But because I am a God of love, a God of mercy, I'm going to show grace to these people. And then comes the time for God to call them to build the tabernacle. God's house. A place where God would dwell. And so in chapter 35 where we pick up this morning... God says I want you to give out of your resources to build my house. And so in chapters 35 and 36 what I want us to do is I want us to see six six themes. Six issues, six overarching things that show us our privilege of giving back to God out of the overflow of what he's first given to us. And this is an exciting passage of scripture because we see, excuse me, we see grace all over the place. Don't let anybody ever tell you that there's no grace in the Old Testament. Some people think the Old Testament, God's a God that's a mean God. New Testament, God's a, a cool God. You see grace in the Old Testament. And I want to show it to you this morning. So let's read Exodus chapter 35. Let's start in, in verse 4 and read through verse 9 to start out. Exodus 35 verse 4. Moses said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, This is the thing that the Lord has commanded. Take from among you a contribution to the Lord. Whoever is of a generous heart, let him bring the Lord's contribution. Gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twine linen, goat's hair, tanned ram skins and goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil, and for the fragrant incense, and onyx stones, and stones for setting, for the ephod, and for the breast piece. Here's the first issue that we see this morning. Giving was first a response to God's sovereign grace and mercy. Giving was first a response to God's sovereign grace and mercy. Because think about it for a moment. What had these people just experienced? In chapter 32, the height of idolatry, the height of immorality. They engaged in the grossest of immorality, the grossest of rebellion against God, and God could have obliterated them. And what does God do? God says, I'm going to show you sovereign grace. I'm not going to destroy you. As a matter of fact, what we find in chapter 34 is mind-boggling. So I want to show you the most important, probably the most important passage of Scripture in the Old Testament. There's probably the top five in the Old Testament. This is probably one of the most important passages in the Old Testament because it's repeated over and over again, and it is God's character to His people. So if you want to underline this, highlight this, this should be a verse of Scripture you come back to time and time again if you just need to be reminded about the gracious character of our sovereign God that we've been singing about this morning. So look at chapter 34, verses 5 and 6. This is after God had decided not to destroy the people. And Moses had intervened, and God had shown His backside glory to Moses up on the mountain. Listen to the words. Exodus 34, 5-6. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with Him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before Him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, Keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and to the fourth generation. This is who God is. The flood of God's grace comes to rebellious sinners. And this is repeated in Nehemiah chapter 9, Psalm 86, Psalm 103, Psalm 111, Joel chapter 2, and Jonah chapter 4. This is. Credo, if you will, this statement about who God is. And so, what does God say? In verse in verse 6, there, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful. An amazing word in the original language. It's this whole idea that God comes to those who are helpless. It's almost like God is a parent taking care of a small child. It's amazing. I look around here at all the babies that we're having in our church, and and I even see some of you rocking your babies right now and taking care of your babies. Babies are helpless. Babies can't do anything for themselves. All they can do is cry and poop. Sorry. I mean, there's more they can do. But they can't clean themselves up. They can't handle themselves. They are helpless and they are hopeless without a parent. And that's exactly who we are as God's people. We are hopeless and helpless without God and, and this word mercy means God is tender-hearted like a parent. He's our gracious Father. And He reaches down and He puts His tender arms around us and He holds us close and He never lets us go. God is merciful. And then it says God is gracious. God is gracious. The imagery here means to to bend down. It's the idea that a king, a sovereign, a monarch dares to bend down to those that are rebels that have spit in his face. And he bends down to them and says, in spite of all the, the ignorance and in spite of all the rebellion and in spite of all the sin, I'm going to bend down to you and I'm going to show you amazing grace and I'm going to love you in Christ. I'm going to bend down in mercy to you. I'm going to be gracious. I'm not going to give you the punishment that's due you, Israel. You deserve obliteration. You deserve destruction, but I'm going to bend down. I'm going to reach down, and I'm going to love you, and I'm going to call you, and I'm going to bring you to my side. And then what else does it say? The Lord is slow to anger. Literally means, in the Hebrew language, when, it, when somebody was angry, it means to snort their nose like a horse. It means God is slow in snorting His nose. It means God is patient. Aren't you thankful that God is a patient God? How many of us here would be dead and deserve to be dead if not for the patience of God. Does God's patience run out on His children? God is long suffering. God is patient. God has a high threshold of tolerance for our stubbornness, for those of us who are in Christ. And then the, the most important word in this passage the Lord is abounding in steadfast love. Has said, we've looked at this word over the past four or five years. It's this powerful word in the original language that means that God is faithfully tenacious to hold us. He's not going to let us go. He's made a promise to us, He's been loyal to us, and come sink sink or swim, no matter what happens, God is faithful to His covenant and He will hold us to the end. God is faithful. He's a God of steadfast love. And then it says, The Lord abounds in faithfulness. That means God is trustworthy. He's patient. He can be counted upon. The imagery here is strong arms. God is a God of strong arms. He can be counted on. He is firm, a firm foundation. And then finally, the Lord is a forgiving God. The Lord forgives our sins through Christ. As far as the east is from the west, so does our sin get thrown to the bottom of the ocean, as, as the Bible says. Now, we could just probably stop right here today and worship just because of that. I mean, you can go back and just meditate upon these characteristics of God, how He revealed Himself. He's merciful. He's gracious. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love. He's faithful. He's a forgiving God. And our only response is worship. What does Moses do? Continue reading. Look at verse 8 of chapter 34. Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And he said, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. Moses quickly bowed toward the earth and worshiped. That's all we can do, people. When you're confronted with a holy God who dares to come and love us in Christ and show us mercy, all we really can do sometimes is just get on the ground and worship and say, this is my amazing God. I can do nothing but worship like Moses does. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Timothy. Paul, says, Paul, Paul captures this idea in 1 Timothy 1, 13-17. And you know Paul's former life. He says, I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, an, an insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed. There's that, that flood language. It overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Paul says, I'm the worst of sinners, but I receive mercy for this reason. That in me is the foremost, is the worst of sinners. Jesus Christ might display His perfect patience. I love that. His perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in Him for eternal life. To the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. So here's the thing with the Israelites. When this God, when this God, this amazing, powerful, holy, compassionate, loving God of perfect patience, the God that should have obliterated them off the map, the God that gave them a second chance, the God that reached down to them in grace, when this God says, Israelites, I want you to give... It's not because they had to. It's because they wanted to, because they've been shown mercy. So their response in giving was first and foremost a response to the sovereign grace of God who should have destroyed them, but showed them grace in Christ. So, first and foremost, we give. Whether it's of our time, whether it's our talents, whether it's of our treasures, whether it's of our tithe, whether it's the next three years, the only reason that we can give, the only reason that we do give is out of response, first and foremost, of the grace of God in our lives. He has overflowed His floods of grace to us, and we respond back out of gratitude. Now, let's go back to the story here. And I want you to notice a second thing that we see when they're giving to the contributions of the tabernacle, back in chapter 35. Here's the second thing. First of all, it was a response to God's grace. Number two, giving was from a generous and willing heart prompted by the Holy Spirit to fulfill God's vision. Giving was a generous and willing heart prompted by the Holy Spirit to fulfill God's vision. Now, what was the vision? The vision was to build the the tabernacle. God said, I'm giving you a vision. I want you to build for me a house. I want you to build a place for me to dwell in. Now, obviously, we don't have a tabernacle today, and we're not saying that our our new building is a tabernacle or, or anything like that. For them, the vision was, God says, I want you to be obedient to the vision. For them, the vision was the building of the tabernacle. I think for us, the vision is the great commission. What's the vision for us? Advancing the gospel, declaring the gospel, putting God's gospel on display, making disciples of the nations. That's what God's called us to do. That's the vision. But I want you to notice the wording used here. Notice what it says in verse 5. Verse 5. Take from among you a contribution to the Lord, whoever is of a generous heart. The original language, this word means ready, willing, eager to give, overflowing, giving more than what was expected. Now, let's go down to verse 20, and I want to show you some more things about how this word shows up. So let's go down to verse 20. Then all the congregation of the people of Israel departed from the presence of Moses. And they came, everyone whose heart stirred him, and everyone whose spirit moved him, and brought the Lord's contribution to be used for the tent of meeting, and for all its service, and for the holy garments. So they came, both men and women, all who were of a willing heart, brought brooches and earrings and signet rings and armlets, all sorts of gold objects, every man dedicating an offering to the Lord. And everyone who possessed blue or purple or scarlet yarns, of fine linen or goat's hair or tanned ram skins or goat skins brought them. Everyone who could make a contribution of silver or bronze brought it as the Lord's contribution. And everyone who possessed acacia wood and any use in the work brought it, and every skillful woman spun with their hands, and they all brought what they had spun in blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen. And all the women whose hearts stirred them to use their skill spun the goat's hair, and all the leaders brought onyx stones and stones to be said for the ephod and for the breastpiece and spices and oil for the light and for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense and all the men and women, the people of Israel, whose heart moved them to bring anything for the work that the Lord had commanded by Moses to be done, brought it as a free will offering to the Lord. Verse 21 there, it says, everyone whose heart stirred him and whose spirit moved him. Now, in the original language, you can... The way I read it, the word spirit there, I read to mean the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit moved in their hearts to prompt them to give. Their hearts were stirred. Their hearts were motivated. Their hearts were were worked upon by the Holy Spirit. We see the wording again in verse 22. Notice in verse 22, it says, Those who had a willing heart. We see it again in verse 26. All the women whose hearts stirred them. And then you see it down in verse 29. All the men and women, the people of Israel, whose heart moved them. See, here's the issue. When you've been moved by the overwhelming power and presence of a sovereign God, when you've been moved and gripped by amazing grace, when you've been gripped by sovereign grace in your life, and then when you've spent time in prayer seeking the face of the Lord, And you've spent time in God's presence. And you've spent time praying for the gospel to advance to the ends of the earth. And when you've come to the point where you've submitted your life to Christ, and it comes time to give, you're in a posture to where the Holy Spirit can begin to stir your heart. I can't stir your heart to give. No human being. I can't stand up here and stir your heart. I can't motivate your heart. I can't twist your heart. I can't move on your heart. All I can do is say, look at a great God and put yourself in a posture for the Holy Spirit to move in your heart. These people had put themselves in a posture. They had responded to God in worship. They'd seen the glory of God. And the Holy Spirit began to work in their hearts. And they began to yield to the Holy Spirit. They began to to have their hearts stirred. And they began giving. Remember from last week how God loves us to give 2 Corinthians 9:7 Each one must give as he has decided in his heart not reluctantly or under compulsion for God loves a cheerful giver. So I'm asking you this morning and this is all I can ask you as you've come to this place this morning is your heart ready? Has your heart been stirred? Has the Holy Spirit been working upon your life? Do you see the envision of advancing the gospel? Have you got yourself in a posture to where you're prayed up and you're ready? and you're willing to hear from God and do what God calls you to do. Let your hearts respond this morning. So number one, giving was first a response to the sovereign grace that God had showed them. Number two, it was a, a joyful, spontaneous response that was prompted by the Holy Spirit. But here's the third thing. God did not need their resources, but He chose to use them for the building of the tabernacle. God didn't need the resources. Here's a here's a Here's a problem. Anytime you put the words God and need in the same sentence, you're threading on thin ice. Does God need anything? No, God needs nothing. God is self-existent, God is self-sufficient, God is a glorious being. He's happy as the Trinity in heaven. He could have been totally self-absorbed and self-happy and self-loving between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit and never have created the world and God would still be fully God and not need anything. So don't buy the lie that says God was lonely up in heaven so He decided to create people because He needed us because He was lonely. No, let me give you a couple of scriptures here that teach that God does not need anything. Psalm 33, 8-11. through 11. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of Him. For He spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the people. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of His heart to all generations. Do you think God needs anything? Psalm 135, 6. Whatever the Lord pleases, He does. In heavens and on earth, in the seas and all its deeps. Now we could have just simply asked the question, couldn't God have just magically had the tabernacle appear? I mean, couldn't the, couldn't the tabernacle come down from heaven magically assembled with all the supplies from heaven and plop down their midst, and God said, there it is. Could God have done that? Yes. But here's what you discover from the Scriptures. Almost always throughout the Scriptures, when God wants to do a work among His people, He chooses to use the resources of those people to accomplish it. He chooses to use the gifts of his people to do it. You see this pattern all throughout the scriptures. Think about the feeding of the 5,000. Could God have magically fed all the 5,000? Yes, but what did he use? Do you remember? A little boy's snack lunch. Five loaves of fish. I mean, five loaves of bread and two fish. Did he have to use the resources? Could he have done it without the resources? Sure he couldn't. God doesn't need that, but he chose to use the resources. So we can't quite explain it, but here's the common way that God works on the earth. He oftentimes, not always, but most of the time, facilitates His work to be done on earth through the gifts of His people. That's just the way God does it. Through our time, through our talents, through our tithes, through our treasures, through our resources. Okay, number four. Everyone participated in giving to God's vision of the building of the tabernacle. Everyone participated. We didn't look at verses 10 through 19, but you see the craftsmen. The craftsmen are are basically hired out by Moses to come and they use their gifts and talents. In verse 22, what does it say? So they came, both men and women. In verse 25, you have the skillful women who could spin fabric. In verse 26, you see the leaders participating. In verse 29, you see again all the men and the women. In other words, giving to the vision of building this tabernacle was not just reserved for an elite few that were really, really rich or the key leaders in Israel. Everyone participated. Everyone was on board. And so it wasn't necessarily this idea that God was after the same amount of money It's not about the same amount of money. We don't don't compare our gifts. We don't know what each other gives. I don't know what you give. Nobody knows what each other gives. God's not so much after the amount as He is our heart. And He wants everyone to participate. It wasn't just a, a small few. And their giving was free. You don't look in this passage of Scripture. Do you see Moses up there saying, Okay, I got my stick in my hand. I've broken this rock before. You guys line up, and, and let me see, your, let me see your, your offering. If you don't give an offering, I got the stick. I got my staff. It's going to be real painful, so you better give. Do we ever see Moses in there prodding the people to give? No, they come freely. They come joyfully, and everyone participates. It was a spontaneous, generous, free will offering where the entire nation said, we're on board. We're all coming. We're all part of this. Now, fifth, which is related... Everyone gave out of what they could give, but they still gave. Everyone gave out of what they could give. Look at verse 24. Verse 24 kind of answers the question for us. Verse 24 says, Everyone who could make a contribution of silver or bronze brought it to the Lord's contribution. Everyone who could. In other words, you can't give what you don't have. God is not expecting you to give what you don't have. But I do believe that you have more than what you think you have. And God calls us to give. Not the same amounts, but to give what you can give. Because God is sovereign over your talents. God is sovereign over your finances. Not all, of you are in the, not all of us are in the same economic bracket. Not all of us have the same resources. God has blessed us in different ways. But the thing about it was is that Scripture says everyone who could participated. And again, everyone was part of it and they gave what they could give. Uh, And again, as I've been thinking about this, I I said this a few weeks ago, and I just thought about it. If 200 people gave $50 a week for three years, above and beyond their tithes, that would be $1.56 million, and the debt would be paid off in three years. Now, here's the final thing. This is amazing. They gave so much that Moses had to force them to stop giving. Turn over to chapter 36. This kind of blows my mind. Look at chapter 36, starting in verse 2. And just to kind of fill in the gaps, the people, everybody's participating, everybody's bringing, the, the construction crew is getting all that they need. And look at verse 2. Moses called Bezalel and Oholiab. And every craftsman in whose mind the Lord had put skill, everyone whose heart stirred him to come do the work. There's that terminology again. Their hearts were stirred up to do the work. And they received from Moses all the contribution that the people of Israel had brought for doing the work on the sanctuary. They still kept bringing him free will offerings every morning so that all the craftsmen who were doing every sort of task on the sanctuary came, each from the task he was doing, and said to Moses, the people are bringing too much more than enough for doing the work that the Lord has commanded us to do. So Moses gave command, and word was proclaimed throughout the camp, let no man or woman do anything more for the contribution of the sanctuary. So the people were restrained from bringing, for, they, for the material they had was sufficient to do all the work and more. Now, this is amazing. Have you ever been in a church before where the pastor called a meeting and said, okay, stop? everybody's giving way more than what you need to give. Put your pocketbooks away. Put your debit cards away. Put your checkbook. We just need to stop. I want to be the first one to call that church meeting. (laughs) That is an amazing meeting. But you notice what happened. Everybody was bringing stuff. And here's the interesting thing. The wording that's used there in the original Hebrew there, in verse um, 6, at the end of verse 6, the people were restrained. I had to look that up. That, that intrigued me. What did, what did it mean they were restrained? Well, here's how they gave in that time. They're not doing like, uh, like we're doing, where we, we give a pledge and pledge what we're going to bring. They gave it all up front. They called it a heave offering. You know what a heave offering was? Maybe your King James calls it a heave offering. They had to heave it up. So everybody saw. So they were physically bringing their stuff. And the word restrained means that they probably had bodyguards there saying no more. They had to physically be stopped from bringing their money. That is an amazing thing that happens. When God had gotten so gripped in their lives, they were so zealous, they were so excited, their hearts had been stirred by the Holy Spirit, they'd seen God's sovereign grace, they'd experienced His forgiveness, and they could not help but just keep bringing and bringing and bringing and bringing so much so that Moses said, it's enough. Now that's a pastor's joy, (laughs) but it's also a joy to God because God loves a cheerful giver. And here's the bottom line on giving. We give out of joyful obedience to who God is and to how he has treated us in Christ. What's the bottom line in our giving? It's joyful obedience to who God is. Who is God? The Lord is gracious, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, faithful, forgiving. How has he treated us in Christ? He's loved us with the flood of mercy. He's loved us with the grace of Christ. He's showered us with mercy upon mercy. And I know that we're not building a tabernacle like they did here. And I would never want to create our new building with a tabernacle. Again, I don't really even care about so much the fact that we're in a new building or we've never made it about the building. Yes, God's blessed us with the building. Yes, it's a tool. But I want us to see the joy in advancing the gospel. You know, I think about the impact that our church has had. And I'm very humbled that God would so use Emmanuel Baptist Church in the way that He's used our church. Just to be a small part of the kingdom. Not to draw attention to ourselves, but to look and say, God can take a group of about 250 people who pray diligently for four years, and God opens up a door for us to go to India among an unreached people group, and to go into villages and share the gospel. God has raised up a church where we can send teams out to to Russia, to engage people in Moscow. God has raised up a church where we can have vacation Bible school and facilities, where we can do missions and we can do ministries and we can have adult growth groups and we can have um, children's ministries and youth ministries and men's ministries and adult ministries and jail ministries and prison ministries and rescue mission ministries and all the other ministries I can think of that God has called us to have us just a small part in advancing the gospel. And so what excites me about giving is I'm not so excited about a $1.5 million debt. What I'm excited about is what else can we do to advance the gospel? What is God's calling us on the horizon to do that we haven't even thought about that we'd be freed up financially to say if God calls us the sky's the limit because we have the resources to do it and I know it requires resources it requires us to be good stewards it requires us to think about what God would be leading us to do now currently none of our operating budget goes to pay down the debt on this building And you may ask, okay, why has the church decided to not allow the operating budget to pay down the debt on the church? We have an operating budget, okay? It's it's a $360,000 a year operating budget. It goes for ministries. It goes for missions. It goes for um, utilities. It goes for staff. It goes for supplies. All the things that God has called us to do as a church, that comes out of the general fund. Why do we not take the money that comes into the general fund and pay down the debt each month on the building. If we did that, it would be one-third of our budget. So that means we'd have to make a choice as a church. What one-third or what 33% of staff, ministries, and missions are we going to cut? And I will stand here before I as your pastor, and I will stand here as elders and say, that is not our vision. We don't want to have to sit here and say, what do we want to cut So, we're asking you to give above and beyond your tithes and your offerings to help pay down the debt on this this building. So, what are we asking you to do today? You're probably thinking, well, why am I here? Is Sean going to give the sales pitch? I'm not going to give a sales pitch. I think you know by now that we've asked you to pray, we've asked you to seek the face of the Lord. And so well, all that I'm really asking you to do this morning is just to be obedient to what God has called you to do. If God has worked in every single one of your hearts this morning and God has, t- has spoken to you and God has led you and God has guided you, it's between you and God just to respond to what He is telling you to do. And so all I would just hope this morning is that you've spent time in prayer. That you spent time in prayer as a family, you've spent time in prayer as an individual, that that you know kind of where God is leading you to go this morning. One of the things that I want you to understand is this. Last night, the key leadership of the church met. That would be elders and deacons and growth group leaders and those that are in key leadership positions in our church. We met as leaders. And you may ask, well, why did the leaders meet the night before to give their pledges? Well, in First Chronicles chapter 29, we see a biblical pattern of that. When David was going to construct the tabernacle, or the temple, David first and foremost as the key leader stood up and said, I'm giving out of my own personal treasury. So you need to know, first of all, as pastor, Don and I are committing to this. I would not stand up and ask you to give if we personally weren't committing to this. So we are committing to this, sacrificing over the next three years. Secondly, David called for the key leaders to step up. The key leaders stood up and they made their commitments to the Lord. And then what that did was that motivated and that encouraged the rest of the congregation to to join in with joy to see that the key leaders were leading. And then it's interesting, at the very end of that passage, you know what they did? They ate and drank and had a meal. And that's what we're doing this morning. We're eating and drinking and, and having a meal in celebration of what God had done. And so I just want to just kind of give you the amount. I don't know who gives. I don't know the pledges. This is just a total amount of the key leadership and what the key leadership has pledged up to this point. The key leadership up to this point has committed over the next three years $235,040. And so that's just, we want to let you be aware of that just to, to know that your leaders, those that are in key leadership at Emmanuel Baptist Church, are behind this. And so what I'd ask you to do at this time is I'd want us just to go into a time of prayer. I would just ask you to bow your heads this morning and I want you just to spend some quiet time before the Lord thinking about his mercy, thinking about his grace, thinking about the flood of mercy that he's shown you in Christ thinking about all the ways that he's blessed you and I just want you to just if maybe you haven't spent time in prayer over the past couple of weeks, this is your opportunity just to, to quiet yourself before the Lord and just see how God will be leading you. So let's just spend some time in quiet prayer, and then just a few minutes, I'm going to kind of guide us through um, what needs to happen, and then we'll, we'll sing a closing song. So just spend some time in, in silent prayer this morning.